Random House Audiobooks presents Star Wars, The New Jedi Order, Agents of Chaos One, Hero's Trial, by James Lucino. If the system's primary was distressed by the events that had transpired on and about the fourth closest of its brood, it betrayed nothing to the naked eye. Saturating local space with golden radiance, the star was as unperturbed now as it was before the battle had begun. Only the conquered world had suffered. Regions that had once been green, blue, or white appeared ash-gray or reddish-brown. Smoke chimneyed from immolated cities and billowed from tracts of fire-stormed evergreen forests. Deep within the planet's shroud of cinder and debris moved the warship most responsible for the devastation. The vessel was a massive ovoid of Yorick coral, its scabrous black surface relieved in places by bands of smoother stuff, lustrous as volcanic glass. In the pits that dimpled the coarse stretches hid projectile launchers and plasma weapons. Other, more crater-like depressions housed the laser-gobbling Dovin basils that both drove the vessel and shielded it from harm. Farther removed from the battle floated a smaller vessel, black as well, but faceted and polished smooth as a gemstone. From a roost in the underside of its angular snout, a gaunt figure cross-legged on cushions beheld these sights without cheer or regret. Necessity had engineered the destruction. What had been done needed to be done. An acolyte stood in the rear of the command roost, relaying updates as they were received by a slender living device fastened to his right inner forearm by six insectile legs. Victory is ours, Eminence. Our air and ground forces have overwhelmed the principal population centers. However, our arrival does not please Commander Tla, Eminence. He does not dismiss out of hand the need for sacrifice, but he asserts that the campaign has been successful thus far without the need for religious overseers. He fears that our presence will only confound his task. Commander Tla fails to grasp that we engage the enemy on different fronts, Harar said. Any opponent can be beaten into submission, but compliance is no guarantee that you have won him over to your beliefs. Harar, a male of middle years, rose and moved to the lip of the roost's polygonal transparency, where he stood with three-fingered hands clasped at the small of his back, the missing digits having been offered in dedication ceremonies and ritual sacrifices as a means of escalating himself. A headcloth, patterned and significantly knotted, bound his long black tresses. The back of his neck showed vibrant markings etched into skin stretched taut by prominent vertebrae. The planet turned beneath him. What is this world called? he asked. Obra Sky, Eminence. Obra Sky, Harar mused aloud. A herald of lesser station appeared in the roost, offering salute by snapping his fists to opposite shoulders. Belicure, Eminence. I bring word that the captives have been gathered. How many? 
several hundred of diverse aspect. Uh, do you wish to oversee this election for the sacrifice? Harar squared his shoulders and adjusted the fall of his elegant robes. I am most eager to do so. The door's diaphanous seal opened on an immense hall packed to the bulkheads with captives taken on and in the skies above Obra Sky. Harar's entourage of personal guards and attendants moved into the hold, followed by the priest himself perched atop a levitated cushion, one leg folded beneath him, the other dangling over the edge. Well illuminated by bioluminescent patches that rashed the walls and ceiling, the hold had been sectioned off into a score of separate inhibition fields arranged in two parallel rows and maintained by larger Dovan basils. Pressed shoulder to shoulder in each field stood scholars and researchers from a host of worlds, humans and others, Bothans, Bith, Quarren, and Kamasi, all jabbering at once in a welter of tongues. Harar hovered on the cushion, surveying the scene with hooded eyes. Some of the prisoners begged for mercy as Harar's cushion carried him toward the closest inhibition field, but most fell silent in stark apprehension. He regarded them indifferently until his eyes happened on a furred humanoid from whose bulging brow emerged a pair of ringed, cone-shaped horns. Bare hands and feet were hardened by physical labor, but the creature's limpid eyes belied a deep intelligence. The humanoid wore a sleeveless, sack-like garment that fell raggedly to the knees. What species are you? Harar asked in flawless basic. I am Gotol. Harar indicated the sackcloth, your attire befits a penitent more than a scholar. Which are you? I am both, and I am neither, the Gotel said with purposeful ambiguity. I am an Hakig priest. Harar twisted spiritedly on the cushion to address his retinue. Good fortune! We have a holy one in our midst. His gaze returned to the Gotel. Tell me something of your religion, Hakig priest. What interest could you have in my beliefs? Ah, but I, too, am a performer of rituals. As one priest to another, then. We, Hekig, believe in the value of simple living, the Gotel said plainly. Yes, but to what end? To ensure bountiful harvests? To escalate yourself? To secure a place in the afterlife? Virtue is its own reward. Harar adopted a puzzled look. Your gods have said as much? It is simply our truth, one among many. One among many. And what of the truth the Yuzhong Vong bring you? Aver that you recognize our gods, and I may be inclined to spare your life. The Gotel stared at him dispassionately. Only a false god would thirst so for death and destruction. Then it's true. You fear death. I have no fear of a death suffered in the cause of truth, the alleviation of suffering, or the abolishment of evil. Suffering? Harar leaned menacingly toward him. Let me tell you of suffering, priest. Misery is the mainstay of life. Those who accept this truth understand that death is the release from suffering. That's why we go willingly to our deaths, for we are the resigned ones. He scanned the captives and raised his voice. 
We ask no more of you than we do ourselves to repay the gods for the sacrifices they endured in creating the cosmos. We offer flesh and blood so that their work might endure. Our god demands no tribute other than good acts, the Gotel rejoined. Acts that raise calluses, Harar said in disdain. If this is all that is expected of you, it's no wonder your gods have abandoned you in your time of need. We have not been abandoned. We still have the Jedi. Murmurs of fellowship move through the throng of captives. These Jedi are your gods? Harar asked. The Gotel took a moment to answer. The Jedi Knights are the trustees of peace and justice. And this force I have heard about, how would you describe it? The Gotel grinned faintly. It is something you will never touch. Although if I didn't know better, I would swear you were sprung from its dark side. Harar's interest was piqued. Their force contains both light and dark? As do all things. And which are you with regard to us? Are you so sure you embody the light? I know only what my heart teaches. Harar deliberated. Then this struggle is more than some petty war. This is a contest of gods in which you and I are but mere instruments. The Gotel held his head high. That may be so, but the final judgment is already decided. Harar sneered. May that belief comfort you in your final hour, priest, which, I assure you, is close at hand. Again he addressed the multitudes. Up until now, your species have faced only Yuzhong Vong warriors and politicians. As of today, know that the true architects of your destiny have arrived. He beckoned his entourage forward. This force is a strange, stubborn faith. If ever we're to rule here, we need to understand just how it binds these myriad beings together. And we need to vanquish the Jedi Knights once and for all. In a galaxy fraught with wonders, the convergence of columnar tree trunks and forking branches that supported the Wookiee city of Ruquaro enjoyed a place of special honor. Viewed from above against its backdrop of fathomless forest, the city appeared to have been rescued from the planet's harsh underworld and submitted to Kashyyyk's scudded sky as an example of nature and technology in consummate poise. At the outskirts of the city, distant from the circular buildings that rose from its spongy floor, atop a massive fallen branch that spanned several treetops, a ceremony was in progress, enacted in observance of nature's timeless cycle of life and death. The participants, including two dozen Wookiees and humans of both sexes, were arranged in a loose circle around a wooden circular table. Some stood, others sat on their haunches, but all wore solemn expressions. Save for the group's only non-living members, the droids C-3PO and R2-D2, whose alloy countenances remained in all circumstances essentially neutral. We gather in memory of Chewbacca, honorable son, beloved mate, devoted father, loyal friend and comrade in arms, champion and clan uncle to all of us in spirit, if not in the traditional way. 
The Wookiee speaker was called Ralrachin, though C-3PO had often heard him referred to simply as Ralra. He was tall and aged, even for his arboreal species, but it wasn't the graying muzzle that distinguished him so much as his curious speech impediment. On any other occasion, C-3PO would have been tasked to serve as translator and interpreter, but none of the humans present had need of his polyglot faculties that particular morning. In Chewbacca, the defiant flame burned brightest, Ralra went on, black nose twitching and long arms dangling at his sides. On Kashyyyk or Farj afield on distant worlds, he was never less than courageous and incorruptible. A Wookiee with heart enough for ten and eager strength enough for fifty. Chewbacca had died six standard months earlier during an ill-fated rescue attempt on the planet Cernpedal, after it had been targeted for destruction by the Yuzhong Vong. The fact that it hadn't been possible to retrieve his body was a source of sorrow to all, for had Chewbacca been returned to Kashyyyk, a funeral would have been held, though for honored family members only. Close to Ralra squatted Chewbacca's father, Atachikkuk, along with Chewbacca's auburn-furred sister, Calibo. Alongside them sat Chewbacca's widow, Malatabak, and their son, Lumpwaru. Waru for short. Interspersed among the Wookiee contingent stood assorted friends, kin brothers, cousins, nieces, and nephews. Lobaka, among the latter, a Jedi Knight. The humans numbered only six. Master Luke, Mistress Leia, Master Han, and the three solo offspring, Anakin, Jason, and Jaina. Master Luke's wife, Mara, might have attended if a sudden relapse in her mysterious malady hadn't forced her to remain on Coruscant. Natural curiosity compelled Chewbacca to leave Kashyyyk at an early age, but, like all of us, he was soon enslaved by the Empire. Fortunately, Chewbacca regained his freedom at the hands of a man of like strength and honor. Our revered brother, Han Solo. And in the company of Han Solo, to whom he had pledged his life, Chewbacca was to play a crucial role in the rebellion and in the events that led eventually to the downfall of Emperor Palpatine. C-3PO focused his photoreceptors on Master Han, whose eyes were red-rimmed and narrowed, and whose right hand Mistress Jaina had taken between her own. Chewbacca went on to become a soldier in the New Republic, Raura said. He aided in Kashyyyk's liberation after the Battle of Endor. But he remained first and foremost devoted to Han Solo, as friend and indebted protector, and as guardian to Han Solo's spouse and three children. Raura turned to Han. It was Chewbacca's honor to have been able to come to his friend's rescue on several occasions, even as recently as the crisis involving the Yevetha, when he freed Han Solo from imprisonment aboard a Yevethan warship. As constructed, C-3PO was incapable of shedding tears or enduring heartbreak, as it was called, but his programming did allow him to experience sorrow of a sort if not nearly to the depth experienced by humans and other living beings, and it was suddenly clear that sorrow was the source of a flutter that continued to plague him. Try as he might, he could not summon a sound thought, and with each glance at Master Han, his dismay increased. 
Now, in the same way as the branches of the Rocher seek out and support one another, Chewbacca's spirit merges with and gives sustenance to our own, strengthening us for the challenges we have yet to confront. Warfare had figured in C-3PO's existence for so long that a new invasion shouldn't have come as a surprise. But there was something different about the Yuzhang Vong and the harrowing war they were waging on a galactic scale. It wasn't merely that they didn't distinguish among species or among worlds, New Republic, Imperial Remnant, or non-aligned, or even that their biotic warships and weapons packed such awesome destructive power. What worried C-3PO most was that this most recent conflict was one in which not even droids were spared, and that meant that, like it or not, he might yet arrive at a true understanding of grief and death. The circular table was covered with foodstuffs, bowls of shichibic broth, barbecued trachern ribs, forest honey cakes, flasks of wine, juices and liquors. Humans and Wookiees were conversing in groups, recounting tales of Chewbacca's exploits that brought laughter, tears, or moments of sober reflection. Han sat dejectedly on a short-legged stool, resting his elbows on his knees. Malatabuk and several other members of Chewbacca's family approached him. Mala was cradling a meter-long wooden box. Han Solo, she said, smiling down at him. We want you to have this. Han's brows knitted. He set the box down on the stool and unlatched its finely wrought metal clasp. Inside was a beautifully carved bowcaster, its marked and blemished skeleton stock polished to a deep brown gleam. I recognize this, Han said, nodding. He compressed his lips to trap a moan, fighting to escape him. It's one of the first I ever saw him make. Chewbacca fashioned it shortly after we married, Mala said. While you were here, he fashioned better in his time. But this one retains the warmth and power of him. Han hefted the weapon. I feel it. He hugged Mala, his head barely reaching her chin. I'll treasure it. Mala said... Jowdro, Chewbacca's cousin, is wondering when you and your family will be returning to Coruscant. Han shrugged. Uh, I hadn't thought about it tomorrow sometime, I suppose. Mala lowed in elaboration. Jowdro asks because she and Dryanta need a small measure of time to prepare. Han's features mirrored his bewilderment. Prepare for what? Are they coming to Coruscant with us? Chewbacca's father, Atachik explained. Jowdrul and Dryanta are arranging the feast for Waru and Lobaka's farewell. They will be assuming Chewbacca's life debt. Han's jaw came unhinged. He glanced from one Wookiee to the next in rising dismay. But, but you can't. Ch Chewie's dead. All debts are off. At the chick cook was not at all happy with Han's response. Death may have extinguished my son's defiant flame. But our debt to you continues until yours is extinguished. No, no, I can't accept this. Chewie saved my life ten times over. He died saving Anakin's life. And a chick cook rumbled, nearly showing his fangs. A life debt is just that. Mala, too, was glowering at Han. You would not defame Chewbacca's memory by refusing to allow his debt to be honored. Han stared at her, mouth ajar. 
Right, right, he said at last. I'd cut off my arm before I'd dishonor Chewie's memory in any way. You know that. It's just that... It's just that I'm not ready. Chewie's still alive for me. I can't just allow him to be... replaced. You gotta understand that. He was more than a protector. He was my closest friend. The Wookiees exchanged sympathetic looks. He clings to his memory of my husband, Mala remarked sadly. He needs time, Atachitcook growled, somehow without making it sound menacing. That's it, Han said, grasping at straws. I just need time. After what seemed an eternity, Chewbacca's father nodded his head. Then time we'll grant you. The life debt involves more than simply providing shelter from bodily harm. It suckers the spirit as well. Han saw the truth of it. I, I want that to go on. Mala put her huge paws on his shoulders. Then it shall. Holographic images of star systems and entire galactic sectors pirouetted in a blue-gray shaft of projected light. Flashing overlays showed hyperspace lanes that linked far-flung regions of space. It disheartens me to have to subject you to inert technology, Eminence, Commander Tla's tactician, Raph, apologized. But we have yet to discover a way to separate the data from the metallic shells that sustain them. The tactician raised a bony, gloved hand to the animated hologram. As you can see, Eminence, we have here nothing less than a portrait of the galaxy. In broad strokes, to be sure, and yet detailed enough to aid us in our push toward the core. Roth continued. Obreskai dedicated itself to preserving cultural documents in the original languages and access formats. Once rendered in Villip speech, these documents will yield a wealth of information regarding the psychological makeup of many of these species, and that knowledge will be crucial to our maintaining control over conquered territories. At the base of the command platform, a lone figure waited patiently in the shadows. Harar bade an attendant prepare libations for himself, the tactician, and the figure below. He sipped his drink while he considered the tactician's appraisal of the spoils of battle. What do the seized documents have to say about the Jedi? Harar asked after a moment. Curiously little, Eminence. Resolute footsteps trespassed on Harar's response. Their source was a young female of severe beauty, whose long, shimmering garment accentuated an already lean frame. A turban encased most of her raven hair, and iridescent insects shone from the borders of her robe. Long strides carried her boldly to the foot of the command platform, where she folded her arms under her breasts and inclined her head and shoulders in a deferential bow. Welcome, Elan, Harar said pleasantly. Elan lifted her head. Wide across the cheekbones, her face tapered to a cleft chin. Ice blue, her eyes swam in a sea of lavender and maroon swirls, and her nose was wide and almost without a bridge. Your pleasure, Eminence? For the moment, only that you join us. Elan glanced over her shoulder. Accompanying her was a diminutive creature of motley countenance and a peculiar manner. 
Made piebald by an arrangement of short feathers, the trim torso supported two thin arms, each of which ended in graceful four-fingered hands, willowy ears and twin antennae, corkscrewed from an elongated, modestly disproportionate head, whose rear attenuated to a finely feathered ridge. The slightly concave face was slant-eyed, wide-mouthed, and delicately whiskered. A pair of reverse-articulated legs and splayed feet propelled the creature in agile leaps. Your familiar is also welcome to join us. Elan glanced at the stranger standing nearby, then reached for her companion's right hand. Come, Verger. Abruptly, Harar's cushion rose from the command platform and carried him out over the steps. We will now speak to the matter at hand, he announced. Elan made her eyes alert with interest and squeezed Verger's hand. Thus far, our campaign has been blessed with easy victories, the priest began. Worlds crumble and populations fall at our feet. But while I've no doubt that we will someday rule these species, I fear we'll encounter great difficulties in altering the way they think. Something other than superior weaponry will be required to accomplish that. He gazed at Elan. Our chief impediment is a group that calls itself the Jedi. Think of them as a kind of moral police force, small in number but very influential. Alain glanced briefly at Verger and once more squeezed her hand. What sort of gods do these Jedi worship? she asked. None to speak of. Rather, they draw spiritual strength from a pervasive reservoir of energy known as the Force. And you have some strategy for subverting or nullifying this force? At the moment, no. However, there may be something we can do about the Jedi. Harar indicated the stranger at the foot of the stairs. Alan, this is one of our field agents. Executor Nom Anur. Aside from being instrumental in helping secure a foothold in the Outer Rim, Nom Anur has managed to recruit agents from among the native populations and carry out many acts of sabotage and subversion. He's taking time out from his usual duties to oversee a project he and I have planned. Elan leveled an appraising gaze at Nom Anur as he climbed the stairs to stand before her. Dressed in an oogleth mascar, this one could easily pass for a human, she whispered to Verger. He's an ambitious one, mistress, Verger whispered back. Take care. Nom Anor bowed to Harar, though not as deeply as he might have, then spoke. Before the invasion commenced, and as a means of testing what we were up against, I seeded several worlds with a variety of illness-producing spores of my own design. One class of spores, a cum variant, met with success, causing some 100 individuals to fall ill and die, save for one, a human female Jedi Knight. Neither self-propagating nor contagious, the malady has not spread to the other Jedi. Nom Anor scrutinized Elan. By all accounts, the human remains gravely ill, but she has thus far managed to survive, I assume, by drawing on the Force. Her resistance, however, is a blessing in disguise, for I feel certain that we can make use of it to get close to the Jedi. Infiltrate them, you mean? Elan said. Assassinate them, Harar answered from his cushion. 
or at least as many as possible. Elan looked from Harar to Nom Anur and back again. What part am I to play in all this? The priest moved forward until he was hovering before her. One for which a priestess of the deception sect is uniquely suited. Han stood on the brink with the tips of his knee-high black boots projecting over the edge of the natural bridge. The voices of his friends were distant enough to be indistinct. That section of the bridge lacked anything in the way of a railing, and nothing stood between him and the abyss. You'll want to watch that first step, flyboy, Leia said from behind him. Han gave a start but didn't turn around. Funny thing is, ground zero's always a lot closer than you think. Leia's footsteps drew nearer. Even if that's true, you might want to consider a sturdy pair of repulsor boots. He aimed a skewed grin over his shoulder. No need to worry, sweetheart. I'm already down there. Leia came alongside him and glanced warily over the edge. And I thought the view from our apartment was unnerving. She took gentle hold of Han's arm and eased him back from the edge. You're making me nervous. That's got to be a first... He forced a smile. I'm fine. Leia's brow furrowed. Are you, Han? Today couldn't have been easy for you. He averted his gaze. I wish I understood what I was feeling. I thought the ceremony would help put things to rest, but it's only made matters worse. Maybe if I'd been able to retrieve Chewie's body and there'd been some kind of funeral... He allowed his words to trail off, then shook his head angrily. What am I talking about? It's more than missing out on some ritual. Leia waited for him to continue. I know I can't change what happened at Cernpadal, but I blame myself for getting us into that fix to begin with. You weren't responsible, Han. I was, he snapped. Who knows what kind of life Chewie would have had if I hadn't dragged him all over the galaxy running spice and chalk root and whatever else we could smuggle. Leia frowned. Meaning what, Han? That you shouldn't have rescued him from slavery? Besides, don't try to tell me that Chewie didn't enjoy gallivanting around with you. You heard what Ralva said. Adventure was the reason Chewie left Kashyyyk to begin with. You and he were two of a kind. Han firmed his lips. I, I guess I know that. Still, he shook his head mournfully. I'm losing him, he said despondently. I know he's dead, but I used to be able to feel him alongside me, just outside the edge of my vision. It's like if I turned quickly enough, I'd catch sight of him. I could hear him, too, clear as day, laughing or complaining about something I'd done. But something's changed. I have to think long and hard to really see him or hear him. You're getting on with your life, Han, Leia said softly. He laughed shortly. <laughs> Getting on with my life? I don't think so. Not till I found some way to make his death count for something. He saved Anakin, Leia reminded. That's not what I mean. I want the Yuzhong Vong to pay for what they did at Cernpedal, and for all that they're continuing to do. Leia stiffened. I can understand that coming from Anakin, Han, because he's young and hasn't figured things out, but please don't make me hear it from you. He shrugged out of her hold. What makes you think I know any more about life than Anakin knows? She dropped her hands by her sides. 
That's something I hadn't considered, Han. Well, maybe you should, he rasped. In the hold of the Yuzhongvang warship, 20 captives huddled inside an inhibition field, raised and sustained by two small blood-red Dovin basils. At the center of the mixed species group stood the Gotel Hakig priest, whom Harar had promised imminent death. The field's hemispherical outline shimmered like waves of rising heat. With Harar, Nom Anur, Raf, Elan, and her pet observing from the command platform, a youthful Yuzhong Vong warrior wearing a wine-colored tunic entered the hold, paid obeisance to his elite audience, and approached the field. An assassin, Elan said to Verger in hushed surprise. A mere apprentice, Harar amended, said to show little promise. Though the task he is about to execute will escalate him in the eyes of many. Ripples played across the immaterial surface of the inhibition field as the warrior stepped through its one-way perimeter. Observe closely, Harar said to Alam. A subtle gesture of Harar's right hand was the assassin's signal to begin. Swinging about, the youth emptied his lungs with a sibilant and protracted exhalation. The effect on the captives was almost immediate. To a being, they fell back in surprise, then in stunned realization, and finally in agony, clutching at their windpipes as if the inhibition field had been drained of breathable air. Smooth faces turned a ghastly shade of cyan. Others lost color entirely or blackened as if scorched by fire. Limbs and appendages spasmed, and tufts of fur wafted from the hirsute. Sudden blood mottled the flesh, then began to seep and mist from burst capillaries. Some of the prisoners fell to their knees and vomited blood. The more resilient staggered about, lurching into one another, until they fell, writhing and gasping to the deck. Only the assassin remained standing, but not for long. Knowing better than to draw a breath, he hurried for safety, only to find that the Dovin basils maintaining the field were denying him egress. He spent a desperate moment moving along the perimeter as if hoping to discover some gap, some oversight that would permit him to escape. Then the full awareness of his predicament dawned on him. Turning to Harar, he drew himself up to his full height, snapped his closed fists to the opposite shoulders, and inhaled deeply. Blood began to stream from his nose and eyes. Torment warped his features into a macabre mask, but no sounds escaped him. His body trembled from head to foot. Then he pitched forward to the deck. All at once, the inhibition field began to teem with hundreds of spontaneously generated life forms, no larger than fleas. In crazed motion, they scuttled over the prostrate bodies and massed along the edges of the field, as keen on finding some way out as the warrior had been. Harar motioned one of his acolytes forward. Capture a specimen and bring it here, quickly. The acolyte bowed and rushed to the field. Reaching a gloved hand through the invisible barrier, he pinched one of the scurrying critters between his thumb and index finger and ran it to the command platform. Even before he had reached the steps, the frenetic activity in the field began to abate, as if the swarm had suddenly expended its energy and was dying. The acolyte delivered his tiny hostage to Harar, who pinched the jittery thing between the three fingers of his right hand and held it up for Elan's inspection. Faintly opalescent, the creature was a flattened disc from which sprouted three tiny pairs of articulated legs. Botus, Harar explained. 
Both carrier and byproduct of the toxin precipitated from the assassin's breath. They grow rapidly in the presence of abundant oxygen, but are extremely short-lived. Your weapon against the Jedi, Elan said knowingly. A skilled host can manage up to four Botus exhalations, but in a sealed environment there is no defense, even for the host. Do you understand? I understand that a host runs the risk of dying with his victims. The toxic effect of the exhalation is very brief, Nom Anor added. A host must be in close proximity to her target. Her target, Elan said. Harar held her in his gaze. We would like to arrange for you to be captured by New Republic forces. Commander Tela, while not entirely enthusiastic, has even agreed to afford them a victory in the process. Once in their custody, you would ask for political asylum. Alan looked skeptical. Why would they accept me? Because we would convince them that you are a worthy prize, Nom Anor answered. Hurrah confirmed it with a nod. You would provide them with valuable information, information regarding why we have come to their galaxy and what we have left in our wake. You would also tell them of dissension among our ranks, of disputes that prompted your flight, as well as information of some strategic value, information about our next target. Nom Anor placed himself in Elan's view. Unfortunately, there is no guarantee that you will succeed in fooling New Republic intelligence. That would depend on you. You would begin by claiming to have information regarding the Coom spores I introduced. You would, however, insist on delivering that information only to the Jedi. But be warned, the Jedi possess a kind of divining ability. They would be quick to discover deception. Even in one train since youth to beguile and mislead. Thus, the need for a quick-acting toxin carried by a quick-thinking host. Harar extended the pinched creature to Elan. Quickly, Elan, take it in your palm and clench your hand around it. Elan stared at him. Should I do so? I am committed. Harar gazed back at her. I will not command you to accept this charge, Elan. The choice is yours. Elan looked to Verger. How would you counsel me? Verger's oblique eyes clouded over with sadness. I would counsel you to refuse, mistress. And yet, you have long desired to be tested, to be given a mission worthy of your talents. Sadly, I know of no more unswerving path to escalation. Harar glanced at the priestess's exotic pet. Take her along, if it pleases you, Alan. She may even prove to be of assistance. Alan looked at Verger once more. You would accompany me? When have I not? Alan took the minuscule creature into her hand and closed her long fingers around it. When she relaxed her hand, the thing had been absorbed. It will migrate to your lungs and there mature, Nom Anor said, smiling. You will know when the toxin has reached maximum potency. Then you will loose your four breaths against as many Jedi as you can arrange to be gathered in one place. Elan looked at Harar. What then, Eminence? 
What's to become of you, you mean? Herard took hold of her fine hand, examining the palm that had absorbed the carrier. Moumamour and I will do all we can to monitor your whereabouts, but I cannot promise you rescue. Only exaltation. Should you succeed, you will either die with the Jedi or face execution afterwards. Elan grinned faintly. That choice is also mine. Harar patted her hand. Look to the world beyond for recompense, Elan. I envy you your imminent departure. Mara rose from the couch to greet Luke as he came through the doorway of their suite on Coruscant. He met her halfway with open arms. It's about time, she said, shutting her eyes and holding him close. I would have been back sooner if Streen hadn't asked me to go to Yavin 4. Trouble? Could be. Now that the Yuzhang Vong have occupied Obra Sky, they could discover the Academy. If that happens, we have to think about relocating the younger Jedi. They had been separated for only a standard week, but Luke was alarmed at how delicate Mara felt to his touch. He considered trying to feel her through the Force, but feared she would detect him and resent the intrusion. Instead, he luxuriated in her embrace for a moment longer, then backed away to hold her at arm's length. Let me look at you. If you must, she said, with elaborate sufferance. Her face was pale, and her eyes were underscored by dark circles. But some of the sheen had returned to her red-gold hair, and her green eyes sparked to life under his gaze. What's the verdict, Doctor? she asked playfully. You tell me. It hasn't been my best week. Mara smiled wanly. Things haven't exactly turned out as planned.